Today in the Packet Pushers Priority Queue, we get nerdy about disaggregation. You know, software from one vendor and hardware from another, and our sponsor today is Cisco. And if you just did a double take, that's right, Cisco wants to talk to you about disaggregation. Cisco has that hardware-software separation story to tell, but there is much more nuance to the disaggregation story that they also want to share. And joining us today are Bhavna Prasad, Product Manager, and Akshat Sharma, Technical Marketing Engineer for Cisco's Service Provider Business Unit. Uh, Bhavna, uh, starting with you, right, disaggregation, that has traditionally meant and means to a lot of network engineers the separation of the hardware platform from the software network operating system, but it can mean other things too. Can you fill us in on what else we should be thinking about? Well, yes, Ethan, you're right. Uh, typically, the most uh, commonly used definition of disaggregation has been the decoupling of networking hardware from software. But I think it's also important for us to understand that disaggregation really has a range of approaches depending on what use case is being solved for the network operator. There's the concept of hardware-software disaggregation, but it's also important to know that there is also the software disaggregation through the exposure of APIs uh, within the various layers of the stack. In fact, through our conversations with various um, customers and our various customer engagements, We've actually observed that the exposure of open APIs at different layers within the software stack helps address a majority of the use cases that our customers have, whether they're looking for custom control over the forwarding decisions in the network through direct API access to, uh, to the lower layers of the networking stack or through programmatic access to config and operational data within the device. So over time, I believe that this has led to not only the disaggregation among amongst software and hardware, but also within the various layers of the stack, leading to several use cases that our customers have and giving leading to much more flexible options for them. Yeah, in other words, you don't have to go full fully separated with you know white box and some other kind of a NOS on top of it just because you're trying to get some sort of functionality. If you've got an API and you can programmatically address the network operating system or or other components that are in the box, that may be good enough to get you where you need. And and so therefore, we've got disaggregation in that context as well. Yes, of course. So you can really have um, various forms of disaggregation. You can just have the, the hardware and the networking infrastructure uh, coming from from the vendor, and if we have well-defined uh, open APIs exposed at that infrastructure layer, for example, um, then customers can use, you know, they can bring their own application protocols, their own custom protocol agents, and take care of some of the higher application layer capabilities to uh, control the forwarding uh, decisions within the network. So that's one of the use cases, and um, you know, throughout this uh, this podcast, we can definitely talk about uh, several others. Yeah, and, and we're going to, because we're actually going to tear down um, all the pieces and parts that make up a networking device and then talk about uh, how that all fits back together when we look at it from a disaggregated standpoint. But I, I got a question first, and, and, and it's this. We're, we're in mid-2018 as we're recording this. So as we're looking at the disaggregated market now, who have ended up being the big consumers of disaggregated solutions? And then what are their reasons? Why are they doing it? Yeah, I think if you look at uh, the industry today, uh, so far, it's really been uh, the major cloud scale providers that have been the true early adopters of uh, disaggregated solutions. And mainly, they've deployed uh, disaggregated solutions for their uh, top of racks, which is in data center clusters, where simple protocol functionality is desired. 
But if you look at how the market is progressing, we've also seen more recently um, some of the leading t- uh, tele- uh, telecom operators have also publicly expressed their willingness to adopt these uh, disaggregated solutions. So the market is uh, is small. There have been limited number of production deployments uh, in the white box uh, market. But I think one of the main reasons why uh, some of the customers uh, they're looking at this market as a potential option is mainly because one, they probably have some custom specific requirements that they're trying to address for their uh, use case and their place in the network. And um, and the market is not able to supply a timely solution for them. So they have to you know kind of do that themselves. And also more in terms of they're looking for flexibility in terms of how they deploy software and hardware from different vendors. I think one of the major miscon- misconceptions has actually been that a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the, the movement towards the DISAG market is, is because of cost savings, but it's actually more for uh, time to market reasons and flexibility reasons that uh, the market is moving in this direction. It's much more a business decision, I think, disaggregation for certain types of companies, not everybody wants to be disaggregated. Sometimes it makes sense to buy everything from a single vendor with a single point of support. And there are other times where, you know, this ability to put this operating system that I desire, but on that hardware, because I need to have that hardware offers me something. I think it's a business decision more than it's a technology decision. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that we've actually seen over time is that one of the main drivers of this decision has actually been related to the the cost of support associated with the entire uh, infrastructure that is integrated versus disaggregated and how do you handle that. Mm. We will get into this in a lot more detail as we progress, but this this tends to be a sticking point for a lot of customers when they are trying to make a decision of whether or not they want to go with disaggregated solutions or integrated. Like who is my single neck to choke? How do I get my uh, problems resolved if my software is coming from one vendor and the hardware is coming from another vendor. And let's say I have a bug in the hardware, for example, right? So who do yeah. I go to first? So those are questions I think that um, now that disaggregated solutions are becoming more and more real, uh, mm-hmm. these are questions that are coming up more often. Yeah, and that's that separation. The why do we want disaggregation? Most of the time, it's a business issue. I want faster or I need a different sort of sparing or I, you know something else. As my, it's not really a technology decision where it's better or has more features or whatever. You know, it may or may not have those things, as we'll talk about for the rest of the show. But largely, the reasons are are business related. You know, not just straight up technology decision. Yep. Well, let's dive into disaggregation in some more detail. And I want us to be thinking about all of the different hardware and software components that are in play. I think the in the context is this: the average network engineer probably thinks about this. Ah, I've got this piece of hardware; it's a it's a it's a switch. So it's more or less it's kind of like a server, and I'm going to load an operating system on it. Only it's a switch with a lot of ports in the front. But it's really it's a bit more complicated than that. So can can you break down um, all the different hardware and software components and that are things that we need to be thinking about when we're considering disaggregation? Sure. So um, typically when I have to answer this question, I throw up a slide that represents all the layers. But since this is a podcast, let me sort of paint a picture here. So we've got uh, the separation that we normally understand between the hardware and the software. And when we try and consider the different pieces that would be required to actually integrate the software with the hardware, we start slicing the software stack 
from the topmost manageability layer right up down to the uh, point at which we do the platform integration with the hardware. So when we consider these slices, what I'll do is I'll actually start from the bottommost layer and then build my way up towards the higher layers of the stack. So when we consider the hardware itself, for example, the typical components of the hardware would be things like uh, the platform components that we call them, uh, such as the CPU, the ASIC, um, optics, fans, sensors, right? Now, I would typically put the ASIC in a separate category because that's going to be a different integration point for me. So if I just consider fans, sensors, power modules, et cetera, as one group, then that becomes a set of platform components that will allow me to sort of connect the inventory management part of the software stack uh, further up the, uh, up the stack. Another part of it, of course, is the fact that as we go higher up, you have to have a way of connecting your platform components to the higher layers. And for that, we need drivers that allow you to expose the functionality of the underlying components to higher layers of the stack. And these drivers typically go into a part of the stack, which we call the board support package or the BSP typically. And uh, more often than not, these are integrated and compiled into the kernel of the stack that you're trying to run. In addition to that, you also have the ASIC SDK. And there are different ways in which the ASIC SDK can be leveraged. You might have uh, kernel modules. You might have uh, completely user space integration with open APIs like uh, OpenNSL, for example, that Broadcom uses. And these become the next layer above the hardware, which allow you to have very distinct integration points for both the ASIC through the ASIC SDK and to the platform integration layer through the BSP. And, and just, so just, just looking at those, basically you've just described the box, the chipsets in the box and the various yeah. sensors that make up that, uh, that, that thing that you're going to bolt into the rack and they're not all the same. And so when you want to load a network operating system and have software that interacts with all of that, it's not like a super easy thing that uh, you can just load the network operating system on because they're all really about the same. They're really not all about the same. And you mentioned ASICs. Um, yeah. the ASIC and ASIC capabilities vary widely depending on the chip and what it was designed for, how many pipelines it have, what throughput it has, what uh, capabilities that has uh, vary dramatically from uh, ASIC to ASIC. Exactly. So the typically when we start considering integrating any sort of platform, whether it's part of our integrated portfolio or it's part of the disaggregated uh, portfolio, we have to look at families of ASICs that we can deal with. Now, the maximum amount of uh, both integration costs as well as the amount of time that it takes to integrate a new piece of hardware is spent in actually integrating with the ASIC and the ASIC SDK. Um, so that's why if you have a certain family of ASICs and number of different types of hardware with different platform capabilities within the same family, then we know that if we've integrated the ASIC uh, through the ASIC SDK once, then it is fairly, it's much simpler to actually start integrating the platform components uh, on a case-by-case -case basis after that. So when we try and move from one family of ASIC to another, then we realize that the integration cost and the time tends to increase considerably. So usually whenever you see um, any of the disaggregated portfolios, frankly, from any vendor, you will typically see how the platforms tend to be arranged based on ASIC families, because that is basically how you would mm. uh, quantify the amount of time and the resources that would take to integrate the platform. 
this was just the hardware itself, right? So the actual integration point with the platform components, as I mentioned, the fans, sensors, et cetera, and the ASIC through the ASIC SDK, these are the two main integration points that we typically consider. But as we go higher up the stack, we have to start considering what does the stack have to offer me that can allow me to integrate this fairly simply, right? So the platform capabilities are being exposed either through kernel modules or through open APIs, whatever it may be. Then within the stack, I typically look at three integration points at the lower uh, end of the stack. Um, I would classify them uh, into uh, two categories. One is the platform integration layer, um, and I'll sort of talk about this in just a bit. And the other is the hardware abstraction layer, as we call it. Now, the platform integration layer is the one that integrates with um, all of the platform components like the fans, power modules, sensors, as well as the optics. And the hardware abstraction layer is the one that integrates with the ASIC SDK, allowing you to actually uh, inter interact with the capabilities of the ASIC, uh, push down routes into tables, and so on. So when, once you've considered th these two integration points, what we also realized, of course, was that the platform integration layer in itself is not as straightforward when it comes to something like optics, for example. So we'll divide the platform integration layer itself into maybe two parts. Uh, one for the sensors and the power modules, which are fairly straightforward to integrate. Mm -hmm. And then is the optics, um, which tends to be sometimes similar based on the type of modules that are exposed by the ODM vendor. But we're realizing over time that even the community is slowly moving towards more of an abstraction layer for uh, optics integration through something like OOM um, that we can talk about later as well. Mm -hmm. So that sort of forms that lower layer of the stack that involves the maximum amount of effort from uh, the vendor, the software vendor, to actually accomplish the integration. Have a well-defined platform integration layer and a well-defined hardware abstraction layer, and you will be able to make significant strides in reducing the amount of time and cost that it takes to integrate any new piece of hardware. And to be frank, uh, as we went on this journey, that is what we found as well. Uh, this is what ends up defining the amount of time that we might take to integrate any new piece of hardware, for example. Those abstractions are becoming much richer, though. In the old days, old days, and when we first started down this path of disaggregation, everybody had to write to the native API that the ASIC vendor gave you. But mm -hmm. increasingly, we're seeing abstraction layers come in where there's universal APIs and the ASIC sit via some abstraction layer. Does that make it easier for you going forward? Can you see a time where getting your hardware, getting your software to run on more hardware platforms more easily, is that something that we could reasonably expect over a long period of time, like years, multiple years? Yeah, so there is a significant amount of effort being made in the community to try and ease this platform integration uh, as much as possible. Uh, so we've, of course, seen effort on the hardware abstraction side with things like the SI interface, et cetera, uh, that has focused on trying to get uh, different types of ASICs under its belt. Yeah. Um, and a significant amount of effort has to be put in there to define the different uh, sort of capabilities that you can have there. Now, this is a layer that we're talking about from, say, a community, an open community perspective. But having said that, almost every vendor has their own hardware abstraction layer as well, which yeah. typically tends to have its own capabilities that they use on integrated platforms. Um, so there needs to be some sort of inflection point at which yeah. we can assume that the 
a community driven hardware abstraction layer might be able to meet the requirements that the vendors have been dealing with for a while and yeah. at that point i would believe that yes things might become a lot easier so what you said what i hear there is that the vendors have been developing their own hardware abstractions so that they can use multiple vendor asics and they're far advanced because they've been developed and invested in but in the open community they're still catching up and until that sort of happens or there's some sort of transition to make the two merge or you know <laughs> however it happens yeah. not, not, we're not talking about that here that's that's sort of summarizing what you said did i read that back right uh, yeah pretty much but the, one of the main reasons that um, they are actually a little more advanced on the vendor side is because the vendors have been dealing with a wide variety of asics for a for a long period of time now this is not just within their own portfolio but also merchant uh, silicon for a while and in doing so the only way you can actually do that internally is by actually having an abstraction there in the first place so vendors have invested in this even though they were not disaggregating from the get go mm -hmm. but in doing so that that layer is um, something that has had capabilities which are typically a lot more advanced than something that's available in the community today and that's just the hardware abstraction layer Uh, when you consider the platform integration there i think that's actually the harder part uh, to uh, standardize and that's an effort that is being made in the community but it'll take take a little while um there are efforts within the osp community to take a look at standardizing how the platform integration layer for the sensors can be Uh, can be more standard but the uh, that isn't something that has been accepted by the osp community just yet mm. and other than that the optics um, abstraction layer that is something that the om community the open optical monitoring community within the osp uh, framework has been looking at as well so they, yeah. it's definitely positive and we're seeing mm. a lot of effort in trying to standardize these integration layers yeah yeah that uh, that om um stuff is really very interesting as a way to standardize the monitoring the op and that's a key part of disaggregation is that the components must present consistent data to the software on top and the diversity of approaches at the moment is actually the value that the vendors bring to us true and the the more these layers get standardized the more it will cut down in terms of the cost of integration and the time of integration allowing us to actually deliver disaggregated solutions potentially okay. as uh, as more of a viable alternative as well for certain uh, customers seeking that alternative and it takes time for all the vendors to agree on what's valuable and useful and i mean not just the 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 it vendors but also the companies who make the components they want to have their innovation and their functions that they've got in there and that goes all the way down to the photonics makers as well you know and when you encapsulate a photonics in an sfp it's got a thermal envelope well how do you disperse, disperse that heat when you're driving a 10 gig long range and it's generating a certain amount of heat how do you disperse that you know there's so much going on in there that sometimes it's very hard to see how these things will converge over time yeah true yeah. yeah and what we've really spoken about here is just the integration of the software and the hardware directly right so the lowest form of the stack if we start going further up and this is going back to a point that bhavna made earlier which is that even before you try to step into the disaggregated world of separating out the software from the hardware take a look at the use cases that you have and you might realize that much of them can actually be resolved using apis at lower layers of the stack uh, that might allow you to bring your own controllers your own control plane protocols run them either off box or on box and 
basically gain the same level of flexibility that you might be looking to gain without having to worry about these integration hassles. So in a way, as we look further up within the software stack, we realize that we can slice it up even further, right? So the right above the platform and the hardware abstraction layer that I spoke about, uh, we have uh, something called the network infrastructure. The, within Cisco, we call it the service adaptation layer. And uh, the focus of that um, has been a set of APIs that we released about uh, 2016, 2017 timeframe, where we look to expose a model-driven API directly into components such as the RIB or the label manager or uh, things like BFD interfaces, etc. So that if you were to bring your own protocol, you can just integrate it uh, right there, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't, you only work worry about the logic in your protocol and not about how you'll program the hardware, for example. So those features you just highlighted there are actually deep in their hardware as much as their software. So BFD, for example, requires um, ASIC support or physical hardware support in the uh, line cards or in the drivers, the mm -hmm. Ethernet chips, to be able to produce BFD packets at a, at a speed that makes sense. And so right. you can't just do BFD using kernel code or you know using the operating system because of the load it creates on the CPU. You can't generate non-maskable interrupts without causing the whole operating system to come apart. Right, so these some of these features are definitely platform dependent, um, mm -hmm. but uh, in while defining them, I think it is very important to slice up the stack in such a way that you don't include higher level uh, features. Like for example, I do if I want to utilize my own protocol stack, and let's say I'm just limiting myself to that, then maybe I don't want say the ISIS stack from a vendor. Then mm -hmm. in that regard, this particular layer is meant to restrict the capability of the software to the infrastructure components only and doesn't include the protocol layer. So if you were to start looking at the stack as a thinner version of what you normally uh, consider, then there, there is an opportunity to do that if an API exists at that layer. And that is what we tried to basically resolve when we first published this API. So you're not only disaggregating away from the hardware, you're also disaggregating inside the the software itself. You're bringing APIs between the different components. Exactly. And uh, we've actually seen a number of different use cases sprout out from these. Um, things like uh, Facebook's OpenR protocol that directly writes on top of this, uh, or um, controllers that our customers have been using externally that can directly integrate with the API as well. Yeah, this is interesting. This this is where the innovation's happening at this point. In other words, if the hardware is becoming less differentiated, more homogenous as standardization occurs and as the disaggregation model begins to take hold, then where is the innovation and the differentiation going to happen? And that is at the software layer, how you're actually interacting with this hardware and how are you able to do that uh, efficiently and effectively in, in, in a way that's interesting to your business. I, I think that's what I'm hearing there. Yeah, and I think it's really important because this really helps us, um, you know, offload some of the some of the pieces that Akshay spoke about in terms of the lower level um, infra infrastructure capabilities to the vendor itself, and the customer is just focusing on high level applications, and they can build their own secret sauce there. So we're definitely seeing a lot of use cases specifically in this area, rather than. Uh, typically in the hardware software disaggregation uh, space itself. 
Yeah. And just to maybe wrap up, the uh, the further higher layers of the stack uh, are the ones that most people will typically understand, right? So these are the ones we talk about in terms of feature capabilities. Like, what are the protocols that I support? Do I support L2 VPN, L3, L3 VPNs, etc.? And these features and protocols constitute what we call the, the application or protocol layer. Uh, and these ride on top of the infrastructure layer that I just spoke about. So when you consider, let's say, a BGP stack uh, running internally, this BGP stack is talking to the infrastructure layer through that service layer API that I just spoke about. Right. So if you're exposing an API to the end user, make sure that it matches the API that your internal protocols use, and then you're able to have a very consistent way of integrating third-party applications and controllers in much the same way that you use your own protocols in the system. Yeah, with all of this, all of the different layers, then you can begin to mix and match wherever you need to. Um, this is... It is more complex and nuanced of a story than simply i want to pick an operating system from this person and load it on this white box as it's cheaper which is so often in the early days that was kind of the story that's that's what you heard from everybody that that's what was was coming down the road and now as we're getting down to it it's so much more complicated to actually make this happen and then the way you're actually doing the implementation um can vary widely depending on what you need and all of these different layers have these abstraction layers have popped up to yeah. enable these different use cases. Exactly. And that is why we've always maintained that the use cases define the level of disaggregation. And therefore, if you are looking at um, mostly software use cases, think about the APIs first. Um, are you getting APIs at the right layer? Are you working with the right amount of software in the stack? Do you want to reduce it? Do you want the entire stack? Choose the ones that meet your use case. But in addition to that, if if you do want the flexibility in terms of being able to choose the entire stack on the hardware that you're running on, then those options are there as well. And uh, there are there are certain customers that like to do that, and uh, we're here to make sure that we can sort of meet those requirements as well. Okay, so we've got a a real good idea here of what all the disaggregated model can look like, depending on just where the abstraction layers are and how you break down the hardware and software components of a network device. And and again, a, a far more nuanced conversation than maybe some people have heard before. So let's move this conversation ahead to Cisco. I want to understand in in your context as Cisco, maybe iOS XR and the, and the service provider team specifically, what is the Cisco approach to disaggregation? Yeah, so for us at Cisco, we're really taking an architectural approach to disaggregation as much as it's important for us in terms of building our uh, network protocol port portfolio in terms of some of the software functionality innovations that we continue to make in segment routing, EVPN, et cetera, or building uh, the next generation of ASICs in terms of building out our hardware portfolio itself. It's also very important to us uh, equally important in terms of how we provide maximum flexibility and customization options, as well as programmability uh, for our customers. So our goal really with iOS XR is not just limited to addressing uh, the hardware software disag use cases that we're seeing with some customers, but also address all the various forms of uh, disaggregation in terms of uh, exposing APIs and being able to allow software disaggregation itself. So to that end, we've actually exposed model-driven APIs at different layers of the software stack. 
And like we mentioned earlier, in terms of the various uh, software layers within the stack, uh, right from the layer at the top, uh, we have the Yang models at the manage at the management layer for config and operational uh, programmatic access. And um, we recently also, like Akshat mentioned, uh, towards uh, last year, we've opened up APIs at the lower layer of the stack, which we call the service layer APIs, that really allow programmatic access to uh, the ISXR infrastructure. So things like the RIB, the label switching database, as well as uh, notifications for interface, as well as BFD events. So we're opening up these use cases so that customers can either bring their own protocol or agents on the box or off box in a distributed manner and coexist with uh, the standard protocols on the device. Um, apart from that, we're also building uh, something called uh, the Cisco HAL or a hardware abstraction layer that will enable uh, pr to provide a logical representation of all of the forwarding and uh, telemetry capabilities of the underlying hardware. And this again opens up several other use cases in terms of uh, integration with P4 runtime, et cetera, uh, for managing different mm. platforms. That oh, That's interesting, the Cisco HAL. So that tells me if um, the HAL is what I talk to and the HAL will worry about abstracting away whatever the hardware capabilities are underneath, presenting up to me a standard interface that I work with. If the capabilities are there underneath, I'll have access to them. If they aren't there, the HAL will know they're not there and not give them to me. Exactly. So uh, as I mentioned earlier as well, this is part of the hardware abstraction layer concept that um, vendors such as us have been dealing with for a while. And in trying to expose this capability, and make sure that you have a way of abstracting out the underlying hardware, but expose the capabilities as needed. But also in doing so, uh, make sure that you have the capabilities to support more industry-driven abstraction-less um, concepts that have arisen within the community to try and interact with the forwarding plane. So when we talk about P4 runtime, for example, yes, we can establish that same paradigm over the model-driven API that our hardware abstraction layer supports. So in a way, we allow people to plug in using tools that they might already be using with the community tools, or they can use the model-driven API directly that the hardware abstraction layer exposes. Now, you say uh, being able to use P4, does that... I mean, I think of P4 as being fairly specific to the ASIC it's being written to. Is is there some mm -hmm. portability that would be lent to P4 code because of uh, the right abstraction layer? Right. So the P P4 in, in itself is, of course, dependent on the platform that supports it, uh, particularly if you want to utilize its capability of being uh, compiled ad hoc. Uh, uh, based on the capabilities of the hardware dealing with. Uh, but the P4 runtime on on its own is something that we can um, abstract out as a capability on top of our own API. So uh, that is uh, that is the flexibility that we can choose to provide, uh, but it really depends upon how the, the end customer wants to utilize it. Um, if they do want to use P4 directly, then it is dependent upon the hardware you're dealing with. Yeah, almost like a, in a weird way, like a Python interpreter where it's, you're, it's independent of the hardware that you're on because you've got the interpreter that's dealing with that for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's worth pointing out, we have talked a good bit about the software architecture of iOS XR. We've mentioned, uh, you know, Yang came up a little bit and, and some of the APIs we've talked about those on packet pushes over the last year. So if you're interested in diving deeper in iOS XR and understanding that, uh, dig back through the archives, we've got several more, uh, shows here. 
uh, about that. Now, let's say I am a user of iOS XR, uh, or, or I've just studied it, and I, that's the software that I want to run. I want iOS XR, but I also want to buy Whitebox for whatever my reasons are. It's not going to be a Cisco-branded whatever device on the front. C can I do that? Can I mix those two, iOS XR and Whitebox? Yes. Well, I think right now it's we're we're enabling that more on a case by case basis. Um, we do plan to have a certain portfolio of uh, third party hardware platforms uh, that we will support uh, with iOS XR. So customers will be able to use iOS XR on on those Cisco qualified third party hardware devices. Now, as Akshat has spoken to it a bit um, in the past as well, there is a certain process in terms of how a, a particular platform um, gets uh, selected and goes through the entire integration cycle, whether it's the ASIC integration, the platform integration, et cetera. So once we, we can determine uh, based on the customer request and the engagement or the use case that they're looking at, the particular third-party hardware platform uh, that they want to use, um, we have to go through an internal evaluation cycle where um, we 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 make sure that we understand what the platform integration is that is including all of the platform modules so that that works fine as well as uh, the ASIC integration itself and as 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 long as it's something like a Broadcom DNX or an, a Broadcom XGS uh, ASIC that we already support with our uh, integrated portfolio uh, the ASIC integration piece gets taken care of but there's also the the platform integration that needs to be done. And that typically takes, yeah, so four to 10 weeks of a typical, we're seeing four to 10 weeks of integration cycle plus uh, testing. And uh, on um, depending on the platform uh, that customers want, uh, we'd, we'd have that uh, supported based on the business opportunity that we see. Uh, of course, if it's something, if it's, um, if it's a hardware plat third-party hardware platform that we've already built into our portfolio uh, for support with iOS XR, then that's readily available. Uh, but otherwise, we do have to go through that um, that integration and qualification cycle. Now, you had set this up, um, the, describing this, Bhavna, as a case-by-case. Case. Does that mean a customer is going to approach you and said, hey, I'm interested in this pairing, and then Cisco will determine to take that forward? Or is Cisco actually have a program in place where the hardware compatibility list for iOS XR is, is growing over time as you tackle different boxes and chipsets. Yes. Yeah, so, so right now it, it is based on, because it's a smaller market, it is a nascent market um, and not all of the customers um, are ready to take this on. We're seeing that few customers have specific requirements, what hardware platforms uh, they're choosing for whatever reasons within their network and within their specific uh, use case. So right now it, it's uh, we're we're looking at evaluating this uh, on that case by case basis. But I think over time we'll be able to build a portfolio and we'll have this uh, list of third party hardware platforms that we can say uh, Cisco ISXR is supported on. Okay, now so so that's one thing that's coming. It's case by case. It's it's a nascent market, as you said. But uh, uh, Whitebox uh, and then Cisco branded hardware, those aren't the only things I can run iOS XR on, as I understand. There's other form factors or device types as well. Can you uh, refresh our memory as to what those are? 
Yeah, of course. So Cisco ISXR actually has a broad range of um, device form factors that it can run on. So we have our integrated portfolio with the fixed routers for both um, uh, Cisco Custom as well as Merchant Silicon. We also have uh, the modular distributed routers with, uh, again, Cisco um, Custom and Merchant Silicon. We have ISXR running on multi-chassis devices. Um, we also support ISXR running on x86 servers in the form of virtual network functions. And now recently, we've also um, added support for uh, ISXR on qualified third-party hardware. So I think in terms of um, in terms of the range of support itself, it's extremely broad, and I think that customers can really benefit from having the single code base um, in the form of a carrier-grade network OS across these different form factors, applying to the various use cases that they need to be solved. Now, you've mentioned the difficulty in some of the process of getting iOS XR to run on a new platform, uh, and you've talked us through what that process is like. Uh, there's a one project that we haven't mentioned yet from the open community, Open Network Linux. Is that interesting to Cisco? Would that help um, smooth some of the development time out at all? So um, one way to consider the stuff that we uh, use within the Open Network Linux community uh, is to try and understand how the different modules are published. So when you consider the ODM vendors, uh, they may or may not be OCP compliant, for example. Now, even within that context, they do go ahead and publish their modules uh, typically into uh, the, the ONL community. And the ONL community houses these modules within the GitHub repos where we can potentially extract them and then use them within uh, our integration cycle. Now, Open Network Linux is not just these modules, of course, right? We, all, we also have to consider the distribution that they offer where the distribution can potentially be selected with all of these modules pre-compiled into it. And we, from that perspective, there are two different models of deployment that we're looking at with respect to iOS XR on disaggregated platforms. So if it uh, were an integrated platform, um, sorry, an integrated offering where we offer the entire iOS XR stack, including the drivers, that is the PSP layer um, and the entire set of abstraction layers all coupled up into a single installer image that you then um, install and run on the device, then in that case, uh, we would typically not go with the ONL distribution. We would go with the distribution that iOS XR is already using. However, if a customer decides that they do want to use ONL as their distribution that they want to run on, then assuming that they have the current kernel version, and they've already pre-compiled the modules that are required for that hardware to expose its functionality to the upward stack, then we can also offer a container image for iOS XR that will house all of the abstraction layers that I spoke about earlier into the same container image and then run this container image on top of ONL. So you have this option of hmm. selecting, do have a preference of going with ONL as the distribution on which uh, you want to run on your hardware. Um, so in, in a way, the deployment technique also mirrors your use case and preferences um, in, these, in this sphere. Okay, so if I do that, let's say I'm a customer and I choose for that uh, latter description of I want ONL to be a part of that stack and I'm going to provide some of the uh, compile components um, 
What's the support model look like at that point? Does Cisco support all of that or is it a, a kind of a mixed bag? So it is a mixed bag. The more you uh, choose different components from different vendors, um, it does put a little bit of stress on the overall support cycle. Uh, but typically speaking, uh, the first point of contact almost always tends to be the higher layer software stack. So if let's say if Cisco is there for offering the software stack in the form of a container image, Yes, if there are issues, uh, the first triage almost always happens through the um, through the vendor that's offering the software stack. And if that triage leads to, let's say, issues within ONL, for example, then uh, the, the initial triage will still be done by the software vendor, but we would then uh, hook it back into the community to try and see if there's already a resolution for it or not. So yes, it... Uh, the overall support cycle uh, is is something that does get stressed as you try and uh, disaggregate and choose different pieces from different vendors. Uh, not only the hardware, but even individual pieces in the software, as in this case. Yeah, it's interesting the way you phrase that, stress the support cycle. It's not like the problem is not going to get solved, but rather than one support organization that you are dealing with as the customer, you may be, I mean, it sounds like Cisco may still be the, the face to it, but there's going to probably be other groups involved as well, just depending on where the problem lies, which is going to uh, lengthen the process and or make the solution a bit more complex. Because now we've got all these different layers and interfaces and services that are interacting with one another. Coming up with a solution may not be, go to this one development team that's inside of a Cisco BU somewhere and say, hey guys, this is what we need fixed. Now it's multiple groups with multiple interests and timelines and priorities that uh, may need to come together to resolve a specific issue. Exactly. And that is uh, that is why we've seen that the overall uptake in terms of the disaggregated solutions has generally been um, focused on the web scale and the large scale service providers who tend to select uh, pieces that they deal with internally on their own. Um, and they may do that through maybe you know patched versions of community driven software or their own pieces that they would like vendor software to run on top of. So they tend to remove this dependency of uh, the support cycle on outside vendors by taking control of it themselves, which is why you've seen most of the web scale guys do this first. Well, guys, we've been running through a lot of detailed information. This is really good. But there's one more thing that I wanted to dive into. I wanted to understand the hardware qualification process uh, a bit more. So if I'm a customer and I have something I want to run iOS XR on, can you Talk me through the process that Cisco's going to go through internally. We hit it at a high level, but I think there's more information to be shared there. Yeah, absolutely. So when I uh, talk about the overall integration cycle, I typically divide it into four distinct steps. Um, in fact, we actually released a blog uh, around March timeframe uh, in 2018 that spoke about these steps in further detail. And I actually implore people to take a look at our blog. Um, it's on XR Docs, and we'll probably link it later. The, the whole idea behind the four steps is to uh, showcase at which point does the vendor really come in, uh, in terms of the integration cycle versus how the selection criteria has to happen when the customer, the deployer, has to select a particular piece of hardware for this cycle. So the selection of the hardware is usually the first step, right? So the the network uh, operator, the deployer, the customer is going to select the type of hardware that meets the requirements. This could be dependent typically on the ASIC um, that's present in the hardware, uh, but also some of the uh, 
platform capabilities, things like uh, the capabilities of the fans or the power modules, etc. So once you've selected that hardware, the, the next question is, um, how do you integrate with the higher layers of the stack? So you asked somebody like Cisco to come in and provide iOS XR as a stack that can run on that hardware. Then we have to look at uh, the, the two abstraction layers that I spoke about earlier, which is the platform abstraction and the hardware abstraction layer. And in doing so, we will typically select the modules that are required to integrate with the platform abstraction layer. And these modules, um, let's say if these are OCP compliant hardware, we would select these modules from uh, the Git repo where they might be hosted. And if they're not, then we'll have to go to the ODM vendor to provide it uh, to us. And once you've integrated the platform so that the fans and the sensors, et cetera, are taken care of in the inventory management system of the software stack, so that when you go ahead and do, let's say, a show environment fan, then you're able to actually see this data. Then the next step is to, of course, consider whether the ASIC SDK uh, that we're utilizing uh, also integrates cleanly with the hardware abstraction layer. I mentioned this earlier that usually this integration with the hardware abstraction layer is the part that takes the maximum amount of time. And therefore, if it's already done uh, based upon the portfolio of devices that the vendor already supports, then it significantly reduces the overall integration cost in time. And therefore, if there is a family of ASICs that are supported by a given vendor, it is safe to say that the major work will only happen as part of the platform integration cycle that I just mentioned. So select the hardware. Uh, provide the modules based on the ODM vendor that's been selected, um, do the ASIC SDK integration, which could be open or uh, it could be licensed as needed. And lastly, uh, package up the entire software stack, uh, typically in the form of a NOS installer image. Uh, so if you have white box hardware, which today typically use ONI as the image installation system or the bootloader, then you would typically create an ONI compatible installer of the overall software stack that contains all the internal integrations and then provide that to the end user. Um, that way you can use ONI to load it up, install the image, and then once it's up and running, you've got the iOS XR stack running on top of the hardware, right? So you, these four steps usually cover your entire cycle. There are, of course, nuances to it, and there can be different options that we can select at each stage, uh, but that usually comes up as part of the integration cycle where we have constant conversation back and forth between the customer and us. Yeah, I think it's very telling. The whole context of this has been in a, basically a customer is going to approach you wanting to uh, help create this solution. It's not as if... Uh, it's not the kind of a, a typical customer relationship that a lot of network engineers might have with Cisco where they think of, I'm going to log in and I'm going to download some code onto some hardware and then fire it up. Th there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more involved at this stage of the game. Exactly. And I, I think the word at this stage is important. Um, since Bhavna mentioned it is fairly nascent at this point in time, the interaction is very customer driven. And as we go forward and we're able to have a certain portfolio of devices that we do support, yes, it will get to a stage where you can just start downloading and running on the mm. approved supported set of devices that we might um, publish. Right. All right, that was that's great information. All fantastic information from Bhavna and Akshat. Really, thank you for the deep dive here and explaining how disaggregation works with iOS XR from the Cisco service provider point of view. Um, 
Is there, if people want to find out more, are there any content that you can recommend to them, uh, links or Twitter handles or anything like that you'd like to share? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in terms of content, uh, everything that we spoke about here is something that we've captured in blogs that we continue to write on on this topic. And you'll find this hosted on exadocs.io, uh, specifically in the cloud scale networking area of exadocs.io. Um, so we publish all of this information, including things uh, like the service layer API and the different layers of the software disaggregation that allows you to access different APIs um, within the stack. And we we blog on this, we showcase different use cases, uh, we showcase how you can um, use it to integrate it in your part of the network and uh, have a contact point with us in terms of uh, taking it further. Um, I'd also probably uh, like to take give a shout out to the Twitter handles. So uh, xrdocs.io itself tweets on xrdocs um, on Twitter. And uh, I uh, tweet on IR Akshat. So take a look at that and you will find uh, lots of information coming your way. The blog's very good, by the way. Congratulations. It's actually got lots of actually useful stuff. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. do track your, what's going on there, and there's lots of useful documentation, and, and the blog posts are actually relevant and useful, so I can recommend it. Uh, thanks, Greg. That's actually what we've been looking to do is for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you for listening to the Priority Queue, and our very special thanks to Cisco for sponsoring the Packet Pushers. Without our sponsors, our podcast forwarding engine would suffer a severe impairment in PPM. That is, podcasts per month. And if you ring up Cisco, let them know that you heard about it on Packet Pushers. You can find the show notes for this episode in your podcatcher, and if you visit packetpushers.net, you can discover over 1,000 other episodes from across our podcast network for networking and infrastructure professionals, along with our community blog and news feeds. Tweet at Packet Pushers, follow us on LinkedIn, rate us and Apple Podcasts, and become a premium member at ignition.packetpushers.net. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.